Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am on the road. This is, I don't know what order these are going to come out in, but this is interview four of four in the two days that I've been in Nashville. Um, I'm sitting here with Ryan Mitta. I'm glad that you explained your Instagram tag on Karen's interview with you, <laughs> so I knew how to say your last name. He is the, uh, there, he's got a lot of titles, and I'll let him talk a little bit about that. Um, I would recommend... You go to Karen's podcast, The Musician's Guide for the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. If you want to get more information about Ryan, that was a great interview, and I don't really feel like we need to go through uh, a whole ton of what you've already been through, although we will cover probably some of the same things, uh, just not maybe in as much detail in those ways. So go check that out if you want more with Ryan. But um, uh, he is the your director of jazz Studies, jazz yeah, band. Direct, director of jazz studies uh, here at the Blair School of Music at Vanderbilt University. And then you run your own, you call it the pro band. It's yeah, the Ryan I just Mitta call it the pro band. It's Ryan Mitta Jazz Orchestra. It's just It becomes a mouthful, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's saying, hi, I'm Ryan Mitta. I run the Ryan Mitta Jazz right, Orchestra. Yeah. Um, but he does have his own big band, which is pretty unique. Um, I, I think that's, well, certainly going to talk about uh, just starting that and, kind of what that is to run that. And I know you talked a little bit about some of it kind of runs itself when you have such great musicians to work yeah, with. Absolutely. Um, but we'll, we can talk some about the the details of that. And then I know you do a lot of composing and I pro I think arranging as yeah, well. Yeah, a lot um, of arranging. Yeah, and so uh, it sounds like you're a very busy guy. So I hope to be able to kind of pick that apart too and see how you manage to do all of it and make sure that it's all really great. So um, thank you for having me oh, in your office. It's my pleasure. Thank you uh, for asking me to talk. Yeah, this is very, very fun, very cool. As I said to you before we started, everybody's been so nice to me. Here. Yeah, Nashville's a nice town. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed getting to know you guys, and I appreciate you being so welcoming to me. So we could start, I guess, with uh, one thing I'm curious about. As someone who runs, you know, direct, director of jazz studies, you kind of oversee everything. I'm curious, uh, in your opinion, what you've noticed what do you see as some challenges uh, or struggles or whatever you want to call it in uh, like recruiting and maintaining a jazz program, growing a jazz program, just kind of what you feel like your responsibility is here and how you view uh, what your role is in, 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 in the whole, I suppose. Yeah, of course. Um, my greatest experience has been in growing a jazz program. So uh, I'm starting my sixth year here at the Blair School um, and I kind of got handed a program that was, um, it, it was in need uh, of some bandaging, um, not, not just from a logistics standpoint, but an emotional one. My predecessor passed away mid-semester and the students who were still in the program had still had to recover a lot from that emotional loss that they had, um, you know, obviously the school didn't, they lost their colleague, but they also lost somebody who was spearheading this program. And um, with that, my predecessor, he was in bad health for an extended period of time. So it kind of had an effect on the program uh, over time. And of course, the, his sudden passing had a profound effect on our colleagues and the students. 
Um, so for, for us, it, we really had to focus on healing those wounds for the, especially for the students, you know, when you're 18 years old and you lose somebody who is a mentor and uh, a friend, um, it's very difficult. Yeah, um, absolutely. so we focused a lot on that. Um, were you involved with Vanderbilt? before you became the director or did you come here? I, I, I wasn't. Um, they actually found me um, to come to take over this role. Uh, they had posted the job um, shortly, maybe a few weeks after his passing. Um, they had somebody in the interim come in and, and fill in an alumni. Um, and, you know, I just get a call one day. I saw the posting. I didn't feel qualified for the job, so I didn't apply. Um, so, and then one day out of the blue, one of our faculty colleagues here named Bruce Dudley uh, called me and said, hey, we would like to, you to apply for this job. Um, I did, and I came out and interviewed. And, you know, I definitely, I was, I was really nervous. I had, I'd lived in Middle Tennessee before. And, um, you know, Blair, um, you know, they, they didn't have a, a huge reputation for, uh, you know, advocating for jazz music. And so I, I was, I was excited, but I was also nervous. It's like, well, what can I do with this? You know, it seems like it's in a really tough spot because of this, you know, faculty member passing away. Sure, and, yeah. You know, kind of the emotional state of of the program. But I, I accepted the position. Um, Jeremy Wilson, who you also interviewed, uh, was actually the guy who really sold me on on the Blair School and Vanderbilt, and. Um, and he's just been a fantastic colleague and cheerleader for our program. Um, yeah, he seems like the real deal. He, is, I mean, he he is just the real deal. all around hundred percent person player. It just seems yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's 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 the guy. So he really sold me on it. You know, I get here and we work on on building, you know, trust between me and the students. You know, um, you know, I I do things very differently um, than he did. Um, I also. I would say I do things differently than most people do when running a jazz uh, jazz band. Um, what do so, you mean by that? Like how? If, can you put like a yeah? Sort of I, a I, thing I, to I that? can kind of yeah. outline that, but um, you know, so it took like this kind of circle of trust, you know, th that we had to have between me and and the, my faculty colleagues and the students. It's like trust me, we're, we're going to make this really great. Um, I, I'm very. I have no qualm admitting that I'm very demanding on the students. Um, you know, I think any more, um, especially the type of students we get at Vanderbilt, they're very high performing. Uh, they're stretched very thin. Like their brains are everywhere all the time. They have really, you know, and sometimes when we get into rehearsal, you know, you can kind of tell that their brain is somewhere else. It's focused on that chemistry exam. It's focused on, you know, um, I'm having a fight with my friend or my roommate or my girlfriend or, or whatever, you know, the whole act of being mentally present. Um, and that's something I really emphasize to the students is like, we have twice a week are what 90 minute rehearsals and it's 110% all those 90 minutes uh, of every last bit of presence, mindfulness and, you know, energy. Yeah, you know, absolutely. When when I step out of big band rehearsal, I'm exhausted because I'm giving, I'm personally giving the ensemble everything that I have to give. And that's kind of what I expect of the students as well. Yeah, I think especially as a leader of the group, 
you showing that that's the expectation, I think yeah. makes it uh, you available to ask that of them because yeah. you're you're not asking them something that you're also not willing to give. I think that's a huge part of being able to be demanding is that you're demanding of yourself too. A- absolutely. And those exact words that you just said are the things that um, when I first started working here, Jeff Coffin, who is on faculty here, saxophonist for Dave Matthews Band and uh, formerly of Bella Fleck, he um, he said those exact words to me. Like I hired him the second year I was teaching here and I was like, man, I just feel like I'm asking so much from these students. And he said, you're not asking them to do anything that you're not already doing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I, I really uh, do an emphasis on on uh, leadership, like band leadership and ownership. Uh, the section leaders have really high expectations. Um, you know, not only is like setting up and running rehearsals and stuff like that, but also being spiritual leaders of the ensemble. Um, to me, when we like, obviously, it's about the music. You know, this big band is about music. But at the end of the day, some of these students aren't going to go into music. Right. right. Um, so what I really want to teach uh, is leadership and teamwork and um, how to work with, with a group, how to um, not only have that group, but finding your own individual voice within inside that group. Um, so the skills that it's, it's been very rewarding, the senior class that I just had that, that graduated, um, I don't know. I, I I didn't crunch the numbers or anything. I would say at least half of them, if not more, are going into things that are outside of music. Hmm. Um, but they're going to hopefully take the things that they learned in big band rehearsal, the uh, community that they had in the ensemble or in the jazz program as a whole, and they're going to hopefully carry that into whatever they're doing. Like one of our students is now working at Capital One. Uh, you know, and another student went to med school and another student is off um, doing like acoustical engineering uh, in California, which is kind of music adjacent, but like hopefully they're taking the tools um, and the community that they gained while uh, being a part of this program and applying it to whatever they do. And if it happens to be music, great. Sure, sure. Uh, um, but But those things can be translated uh, across the board, you yeah. know, like you were talking about being a leader, if that's your role, being able to understand how to follow leadership, if yeah. that's your role. And do you try to explain these things in those directed terms or do you kind of hope? That I, they I do, get, I do, yeah. I do explain it in those directed terms is actually in my syllabus. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's that's a, like really just a huge part of what you believe your role is, is to help them grow yeah. in all of those. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I could, we could show up every day and we could play Count Basie. We could play Duke Ellington. And we could uh, play all the really great repertoire and we can have a great time. Um, And there are programs out there that do that and they do that really well. Um, But I really want to see the personal growth in the students. Um, And every year it's kind of an interesting uh, task because um, that's how much leadership is important in this program is when the leaders graduate, I kind of have these first couple months of the school year. It's like, all right, who's going to lead and who's going to, um, you know, be the guides for the younger students. Um, and sometimes I have to have that conversation. It's like, look, you know, you've really progressed musically. Um, you've been in this ensemble for a while. You've been in this program for a while because it's not just about the big band. Big band's easy to talk about because it's a pretty good big band. Um, but in the program as a whole, and it's like, it's time for you to step up and be a leader. And the students 
I think have this really interesting um, way. It's, it's interesting to observe because every student leads in a different way. Like I have my silent leaders. I have my very vocal leaders. Yeah, that was, uh, that was definitely me. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, I'm a, a very vocal leader. Sure. Um, but uh, one of my student workers I had last year was very quiet leader, always showed up prepared, uh, always like set up, tear down, was there early, stayed late, but he he did the work and he set an example, was a really great silent leader. And so, um, and same thing with our jazz combos. Every jazz combo has a student leader, even though they're assigned a faculty member, a student leader who focuses on the scheduling, um, you know, consults with a faculty member for repertoire. And it's that relationship between that faculty member and that student leader on the direction of where that combo goes. So um, I think empowering the students to, you know, be the leaders, I think is, is really important. And in this very safe environment that we are yeah. we are in because I don't think myself or any of my colleagues are going to let them slip up to a point where it's going to be, um, you know, a major problem. Yeah. And it's like, this is music we're talking about. It's, you know, my better half is a medical doctor. So if, you know, it's a little bit more serious, it's if a little something, more happens, if something yeah. bad happens there. It's a big deal. Um, but I think asking that kind of responsibility and, and kind of giving them the opportunity to uh, fail basically. Yeah. So you can then be like, here we go. It's okay to fail. I, I've always tried to maintain that idea of, what happens at school, although it seems like a really big deal, it's kind of not a big deal. Yeah. Unless you really mess up, of course. But if we carry these bad habits or these non-professional habits into the professional world, that's when it'll catch up with us. So it's much better that you fail a lot in school oh, yeah. and then figure it out. And it sounds like it's very cool to me that you take that role very seriously in helping them understand how to exist in a society. What's the expectation by saying the expectation starts now. Yeah. So you're not shocked or you're not surprised when you get into the real world and all of a sudden things are more serious. I yeah, guess. exactly. Um, and from a musical standpoint, you know, some of the professional things that we do uh, all the time is we sight read every day, you know, as a big band, every rehearsal we, we sight read. Um, and I was actually telling uh, the trumpet section this uh, last rehearsal and um, kind of the things that you want to carry over into your professional life. And it's okay to make these mistakes now. When we were sight reading, the guy who's playing lead trumpet, reading the lead trumpet part, like when he got nervous, he kind of shied away from it. And I was like, no, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to, you know, it's fortissimo and I want you to just go for it. And if you make a mistake, you make that mistake here and now. Yeah. Versus, you know, if you're in a professional live uh, live performance setting or you're in a studio setting, hopefully by that point you'll be a duck in water and you'll you'll nail it. Yeah, yeah. Why is it important? Why is this important to you? Why is running a jazz band and asking a lot and trying to help these kids? Was that a way you were taught when you were in school, or was it maybe not a way you were taught when you were in school, but you learned it the hard way and now you want to help these? Kind of, do you know where that that drive I, uh, came from? Um. Not specifically. I've seen it done very well and I've seen it done very poorly. Um, you know, I had in a high school, I had two different jazz band directors and it was kind of the yin and yang. Mm -hmm. And I found found the one that was really good. Luckily enough for me, junior, senior year of high school, the really great one came in and really showed me that what, what, how important good teaching is. Um, I actually had an entire band director switch when I was in high school. The, the two band directors were there that were there my freshman and sophomore year 
left and then uh, junior and senior year had completely different band directors and it was like night and day. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was the point uh, where I really said to myself that I wanted to be a music educator. I didn't go into music thinking that I would be a director of jazz studies at a university. So, um, so I went into it that I was going to be, you know, the best high school band director in the state of Iowa. I was going to go get my music ed degree and go like move to one of the towns and be the, you know, the town band director, choir director, theater director, you know, community band, what like the music guy in that town. Interesting. It's like the, the movie, the music man. Yeah. All over. Um, interesting. So that was my game plan. Um, and it just so happened that I, um, my student teaching placement was in Nashville. And so I moved here and started gigging and, you know, it kind of, kind of kept on falling, falling forward musically, um, which was kind of a interesting experience because even after I got done with my master's, um, I was still in this mindset. It's like, I'm going to go teach. Like I'm going to be like a band director. And then I started teaching college and then I got a doctorate and then I got this job. So, um, you know, for me, it's all rooted in the short answer to that question. Uh, it's all rooted in, you know, passion for music education and how important, how good teaching really matters. Yeah. You know, uh, you could be the best player in the world. And if you, you can't teach like, you know, that you, you shouldn't be in the, these situations, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's very interesting to me because as I've talked to you and Jeremy feel the same, same way about this, that this adage of those who do do and those who can't teach, mm -hmm. it's almost like you guys feel the opposite almost that, that the, the, the higher calling would be in, in learning how to communicate, to teach others, to lift them up and to do that in a way that challenges them. You're not sort of just saying everything goes like whatever yeah. goes, you're finding a way to reach them, to build up some trust with them. And that that is of as worthy, if not more worthy of our time as, you know, playing in some professional ensemble and no matter what the style would be. I find that very yeah. cool because I I'm starting to see that, you know, where you see like, oh, I'm making a difference. And we all have those teachers, right? We all have those teachers that we look back and we can say, this person helped me. And you can draw us almost a straight line to why then you are successful in your own field or your own playing yeah. right so it's clear that we all understand if everybody is a performer and nobody taught there wouldn't be any more performers right like exactly. we need good teaching so uh it's very inspiring to hear how seriously not only how seriously you take it but how much of a passion you and it seems like other colleagues here take it yeah for me like teaching is my calling um i feel that if regardless of what i would have done as a profession like what i would have done um, whether it would have been math, which would have been terrible for me, um, or, you know, meteorology or whatever. Um, regardless of what I ended up doing, I think I would always end up be being a teacher. Oh, that's cool. That's so cool to, to, to have that be the thing in music is how you're carrying that out. Yeah. But you could have possibly been satisfied, happy, fulfilled, whatever word you want to put there, mm -hmm. if it was a different one, as long as you were teaching. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you, you mentioned that you didn't feel qualified for the job, but you got a call yeah. for them to do it. What do you think made them want to reach out to you directly if you felt like you weren't qualified? I don't know. So the number one reason why I didn't think I was qualified, I was in my doctorate and they were looking, I was going to complete my coursework, but I wasn't going to complete my dissertation um, by the end of that semester. Um, 
and they wanted somebody with a finished doctorate. I was like, well, that's what they want. So I'm not going to apply for it because I don't have a finished doctorate. Um, and so that's why I, I didn't apply. Um, but then I got the call and, you know, they said, you know, we really think you're the right guy for, for the job. And I know they, they called and interviewed a few candidates that, you know, were in similar, I think they were definitely looking for somebody, you know, uh, at the front end of their career, somebody who could re really build out the program, um, and have the energy to do so. Um, so, um, you know, I think, I had a relationship in this city, like the, you know, I had a relationship with Na Nashville. So um, some of the bands in town and some of the studio work, pe people were still playing my arrangements. So my music was still present here, even though I wasn't physically here. Yeah. Um, so I think that that had a huge thing. I, I was, I had enough uh, ties and relationships in Nashville without being like a hometown choice. So um, I kind of got the best of both worlds in that instead of having, I've seen some institutions, um, especially in major cities where they hire somebody who's a complete outsider and that uh, like cities like LA, cities like New York, Nashville is another example of like a big music city that, yeah, um, yeah. you know, if they hire somebody in an academic position, that's complete outsider and doesn't go over well um, in the music community. Um so I think because why not just hire somebody who's you yeah, have such a, yeah, a wealth of wealth, talent yeah. and skill here? You might as well hire someone, yeah, locally. Yeah. Um, so I think they were like, okay, well, this guy isn't like fully entrenched in the Nashville scene, but has the relationship. So I think for them it was, you know, a win-win. Cool. And so you've been here for six years. Yep. This is year number six. And what would you say? Um, what would you say you've you've seen? I, I don't know how to ask this question in a kind of a, a concise way, but what do you feel like you've seen the the growth or the progress uh, from when you first decided I'm going to try to be a, maybe a little bit more strict or not strict, but I'm going to ask a lot of them and I'm going to put an emphasis on leadership. What kinds of growth have you seen in these kids or how have you seen the culture change? And what do you feel like there's still work to be done? You know what I oh, mean? There, like, there, there's always work to be done. Um, you know, as far as growth, especially on the leadership side, like I, and I tell the band this all the time is like, this is your band. It's their band. I'm just the guy who stands in front of them, you know, really at the end of the day. Um, it's their band. Um, they're the ones playing. I'm not the one playing in it. Um, and so I think that sense of ownership and it gives them a little bit more pride in it, a little bit more investment. Um, every once in a while, I will let them, um, you know, help, help determine some of the repertoire. So I think having that type of ownership is good. They're more invested in knowing about the music, um, you know. And some of the opportunities they've they've gotten. We recorded um, the Blair Big Band's second studio album last year, and a couple of the students I um, I asked to serve as associate producers. Uh, so they were able to really see like the even that side of how the process. Yeah, works. exactly. Cool. So it's really kind of an immersive experience. Of, wow. Um, yeah, they they tracked and then um, they were able to like pick out takes and like see how the entire process works, um, which is an experience I definitely didn't get in uh, in school. So um, I think it's I think it's something really worthwhile. And I you know every every time that they show themselves that they're more invested, they get to have more ownership or flexibility or. 
um, you know, opportunities that, you know, not everywhere can offer. It's pretty rare, right, to have uh, a college ensemble recording CDs. Is that a, is that a common thing? I mean, thing? there's a few, like North Texas does, where I did my undergrad at Northern Iowa. Um, you know, we recorded uh, pretty much on an annual basis, maybe not a record every year, but um, in Northern Colorado, where I did my doctorate, we would record a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think not, not everywhere has that option. Um, and the plus side is uh, I take them into a really good Nashville recording studio. So they get that kind of experience. Yeah. You know, it's, they're sitting in a real, you know, Nashville studio and they get to see how the entire process works. Where does, who, who, who like funds this? Is it worked into the budget or yeah, so do you find I, outside? Oh, every once in a while. So I've been working it into the budget the past couple of years. Um, basically saying that this is a really important aspect of what we do, right? Um, but initially there, there were some donors that were able to help us sure, out with sure. that. And, um, but I mean, as a donor, you could, I feel like you could totally see the value. For oh yeah, these dudes. It's such a unique opportunity yeah. for them to, to be legitimate recording artists yeah. in a city that's full of recording opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time we did, uh, the recording, there was a student in the band at the time who, like was really inspired by the process of it. And then his senior year decided to record an entire album of his own um, and of his own music. And he, it was kind of a mixed ensemble. So he would do some trio stuff. He would do some, you know, uh, bigger like eight piece stuff in there as well. Um, so but that ended up being his first recording project. He had his first full length album by the time he graduated undergrad. That's um, so cool. And yeah, so I think having having that process be less intimidating for the students is a really important step. I mean, I remember the first time I got called into a professional studio session here and man, that's scary. Like, yeah. especially, and I had sat like in my college experiences, I've been able to like do some studio stuff, but, uh, or like play on friends stuff. But if you're sitting next to like Nashville stop call studio musicians, and, you know, it's a studio you've never been to. And, you know, it's been a while since you've, you know, been on that side of the mic. And it's just, it's really intimidating. I remember Indianapolis, I lived there for a year and they have a, they used to do a lot of jingles and now uh, they do a lot of recording still. And it's for like how Leonard, somebody writes a piece of music and they did a demo track or something yeah. like that. We'll record that kind of stuff. And I remember my very first session, I like forgot my mutes <laughs> and uh, I was just freaking out because I figured it was going to be the same kind of thing. It would be some, uh, some, you know, grizzled veterans of the recording industry. And it was just the second trumpet in the orchestra and the guy who subs his first call sub. And I was like, Oh, I work with these guys all the time. Yeah. It took all this, like I could breathe a sigh of relief. Anyway, I forgot my mutes, which was not like that cool of me to do. Uh, it was such an interesting thing because I, I think I felt exactly what you described. I was going to be sort of a fish out of water. Yeah. Um, but fortunately for me, it wasn't that way, but I, I could imagine if you've had some exposure to that, like you were talking about with your kids, you would, it would help alleviate some of the, uh, cause I, I think if you're a student like that and you graduate and you're like, I'd like to do that kind of thing. I, I would imagine if you have no exposure to that, the fear of failure, I suppose, could be great enough that you wouldn't want to just you wouldn't want to try. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's you know, you you've no, noticed that it's a pretty friendly town, and the guys in the studio are great. 
they're absolutely friendly guys, but, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of musicians in this city. And if you have a misstep on a studio session or you come in and you're not sounding your best, you're probably not going to get called again, you know? Yeah. Um, not, not like you're being, being put on this blacklist or anything, but they'll they'll, just find somebody else, they'll find, find somebody else, give somebody else a shot next time. Um, and I don't know. And it's a tough scene to kind of get in. I've been very fortunate the past uh, couple years to be on some really top top call stuff and work with some of the greatest musicians uh, we have in the city. Um, but yeah, it's still like some of those guys who are in those studio sessions, they've been doing it for, you know, 40 years at this right. point. Yeah. And, you know, that they're still like the top call guy and they've been the top call guy sure. for 40 years, so... Yeah, I would like to park here on this subject for a second because I think there's going to be, you know, there's more and more music students graduating all the time. And like in orchestras, there's a finite amount of jobs. And so many people are going to be entering the freelance scene in various places. And I'm curious if you have any either stock advice or personal experiences where you learned, uh, I didn't do this the right way. And I learned this really important thing. If you have any kind of advice for people, I have a freeway Philharmonic series on my podcast that's dedicated solely towards people building, helping people have get advice in towards building freelance careers. So although this isn't that series, it sounds like since you've had enough experience, if you have some wisdom to pass down, I'm sure people would love to hear. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is why I tell the students probably on a weekly basis, be ready for anything. Be absolutely ready for anything. And um, it took me a while to listen to this, my own advice, even from an education standpoint, from a player standpoint. Um, you know, I, I remember it's kind of similar to your mute story. It's like I went and played a session and it was a really great band top call session. And I had brought my barrier with me because that's all I had seen in the music. And then all of a sudden there was uh, a flute part that they handed out on a new piece of music. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. And it's like, when was the last time I touched my flute? Um, and it just, I was fortunate that, you know, I was going to head to another gig and I had my flute in my car and that was fine. But um, yeah, it could have easily, easily probably not been that though. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, you know, trying to fit, but I, I had not really touched my flute in, in days. So I you know, it didn't sound great probably, but, um, and I imagine this is like why you recommend sight reading all yeah, the time. Sight, yeah. sight reading all the time. Um, but be, be ready for anything is, is my, my biggest mantra. Like, so I've been able to do a lot of master classes uh, all over the world. Um, you know, we, we just got back from a, a trip in Colombia, my fourth trip to Colombia in the past few oh, years. Nice. Um, and, you know, you step into each situation and you just have to be ready for whatever. Yeah. Um, because you don't know um, what the band's going to be like. You don't know uh, what the educators or the students want or need. Um, you know, and a lot of clinics come through here, come, big bands that come visit me and want me to work with them for a couple hours, which I'm, I'm glad to do. And it's a, a huge blast. Um, but sometimes they show up and be like, Hey, we need to borrow like a baritone saxophone or we need to borrow, um, you know, do do you guys have drum set and amps or, um, or sometimes it's like, yeah, we we're a band. We're just coming through, but we don't have any sheet music. I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, so 
it, that's from the education standpoint, but um, from a performance standpoint and a ranger standpoint, it's just just be ready for anything yeah. and don't don't let it surprise you because you know a lot of good being a, a freelance musician or being a musician in general. Um, you know, a lot of good and bad things can be thrown your way at any moment. Um, and bad playing situations. Uh, you know, I was playing a gig the other night where I literally just couldn't hear myself in the monitor the entire gig. And it, w- w- it was frustrating. It was like, okay, what do I do here? <laughs> you know, yeah. but, um, and tried to make it, you know, any, any adjustments I could, but that's just going to, it's going to happen sometimes. But it almost seems like in some ways that would be kind of exciting almost, right? Yeah. Like it can be very nerve wracking, but if you have an amount of confidence in your skills, kind of not knowing what it's going to be on the stand or what might be asked of you mm-hmm. and, and to sort of view that as this trial by fire testing of your skills. You know what I mean? I almost, you could almost, I feel like spin it in that kind of way. Yeah, you in could that way. spin it in that way. <laughs> Being somebody who is uh, a composer and arranger and likes to have things mapped out and uh, like planned. And I mean, this has taken me years to get over this because, you know, it's just a fact of, of being a musician is you have to be ready for anything. But I'm one of those people who likes to book out like every like hour of my day, yeah. have everything game plan. I think that's what makes makes me uh, successful as an arranger and composer is because I'm good at mapping things out and seeing where things can kind of fit in. Um, so yeah, it's taken me a long time to just like kind of like go of that and just, you know, be ready for anything. And it, it was actually kind of, so I took the entire collegiate big band down with me to this last trip to Columbia and the students would ask me every day, it's like, oh, what are we doing? Like, what's what's this clinic going to be like? Or what what, what are we going to do here or there? It's like, just be ready for anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That, that's it. That's your, yeah. that's your only task. And, um, interesting. It's, yeah. You know, I, you know, I could give them an idea, but at the same time, do I really know what's going to happen? No. Right, um, so right. just, you know, be ready for whatever. Uh, so I'd love your advice then. You're talking about scheduling every hour. I'm sure maybe not every single day of every hour of every single day, maybe, but, or maybe it is. I've just starting to see some value in that in my own life. And I'm yeah. curious how you, um, how you organize that. Cause it, it, to me, it seems like right now the hard part, it, it's not doing it. It's, it's like literally scheduling like everything, right? Yeah. You get to a point where you're like, oh, is it necessary? Do I have to do that? Is it necessary just to schedule in certain things that I want to cover for sure? Or should I schedule every single hour? I'm just kind of, what's your process in that so you can be successful? My process is about a week out. um, I I take a look at my calendar and I, I really, so for me having my gym routine is really important. You know, I almost think of it, less of a gym routine and more of like my self-care hour. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, And sometimes, you know, like this morning I was really tired. I played a gig late, woke up and I was like, went to the gym for a little bit, but I, you know, drove, drove uh, and got some coffee, you know, took some recycling out. And then I went to the gym for a little bit and it's just kind of my time to, you know, being someone who's wildly introverted, to kind of like recharge and like do, do my own thing. So for me, that's step one is like figuring out where the crack is in my schedule on, on a day-to-day basis to make, make that work. Um, and then, you know, especially man, musicians have the craziest schedules and it's, it's absolutely insane. Um, so I think a lot of it comes from knowing yourself and knowing what you need. Um, cause all of us need different 
things. So especially from a travel standpoint, from like, how long does it take me to get ready every day? What do I need? Like for me, it takes me a while to unwind at, at the end of a gig. Um, so kind of where those, actually, I think scheduling the cracks is more important. So you know what's needed in that time uh, and, and space between like the other big things, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, I hate being late for things. Like it drives me nuts. So I'm I'm always that guy who's like 15 to 20 minutes early for everything. Um, so, you know, for me, scheduling travel time, uh, I don't really tend to schedule a ton of practice time because usually that just naturally happens for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think... I used to schedule like this is when I'm going to work on email, but it has been become such a constant thing that just it's the entire day. <laughs> yeah. So if you just find yourself with a couple minutes here and there, you yeah, check, yeah, yeah. Do you when you schedule stuff out? Do you try to when it's time like when it's time to stop? Do you just cut it off and yep. do the next thing? Yep. Sometimes I even set alarms. Yeah. Where um, you know some some of the really ex- successful arrangers that I know do that it's like they set a timer for two hours and then they say cool that's my arranging for the day the end yeah um unfortunately i usually find myself that i have really quick deadlines and turn around to do um because man i get so many calls that are like hey you know can you arrange this and i was like yeah of course when do you need it by yesterday nice cool yeah um so it's yeah some and once again you know be prepared for anything right right (laughs) um I just, I've found in my own life, I guess, I've found that um, I have a lot that I want to do, you know? Yeah. And I want to do it all really well. And so I've, I'm experimenting right now with, you know, I'm kind of actually experimenting with like this 30 minute thing where I do something for 30 minutes and then do another thing for 30 minutes and do another thing yeah. for 30 minutes. And, and if I need to come back to something, just to have a break of doing something else. So yeah, I'm not doing that. the same thing for hours uh, for focus and, and and variety or whatever. But also like like I was saying, you know, maybe you do laundry as 30 of those minutes. So you know yeah. in your day somewhere, because I find that I could just, I, I easily get carried away with like editing a podcast episode yeah, or, you know, I just get carried away and all of a sudden seven hours have disappeared and I can't, now I don't have time to practice. Yeah. And so I'm trying to alleviate that where I know... Maybe you have a couple. So the, I guess now I've just developed a question. Do you have non, so like gym time, your your time, your self-care yeah. time, that's like a non-negotiable for you. Yes. Are there any other non-negotiables? Like it cannot, it has to happen. So you're bringing up an interesting point. Um, well, first of all, everyone has to eat. Okay. That's a non-negotiable, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and that's why cooking and like my, my fiance and I have, um, a list of all the restaurants in Nashville we've been to together. And we even started an Instagram um, that, you know, we, we are actually, maybe this weekend we'll do it. We're about to hit our 150th restaurant. Oh, wow. That we've gone to just in Nashville. That's awesome. That's also a lot of restaurants. Yeah, well, it's a good food time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so having time together is really important to us. Food is really important to us. Sure. Um, so those are probably the non-negotiables. Um, you know, to me, as I've progressed, um, I used to run into the kind of the issue that you're, you're talking about is like, I get focused on one thing and then there goes like my day and I don't have time for the other things that I need to address. 
So my general philosophy um, over time has been whatever is the most important thing to you at that moment, you need to do first thing in the morning. Right. Because, um, you know, things can happen. You can get derailed really easily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, things come up throughout your day. Um, so for me, for the longest time, gym was the first thing I did do in the mornings still is most of the time, but I have in, put in my accountability, accountability that, um, I'm going to make it there no matter what. Um, so sometimes like Wednesday, I'm, I'm doing a commission right now for a saxophonist, Alex Graham, who teaches over at Belmont that's uh, due at the end of the month. And I needed to make some serious progress on it. So Wednesday morning, I woke up and I put in like three or four hours just on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then taught and then went to the gym later. But so, yeah, I've, I've read articles, uh, you know, productivity articles and stuff like that. And it totally recommends the same thing. So I wake up and I read first thing. Yeah. Cause to me right now, I feel like that I need to learn, you know, mm-hmm. I need to learn a lot. And it also said this, I, it's so interesting because I kind of see where it's coming from. It talks about the word priority and priorities and it gave the etymology of priority. And it basically said like one thing. And yeah. so we we talk about it in terms of priorities, like it's a list, but really the word priority means like, what is the most important thing? That's what you should do. Yeah. And then maybe you have time for other things. And, and so I think this guy was saying he structures his day. Maybe he has the like the ability to do this, but he structures his day of like, I have to accomplish this thing. Yeah. And that's like what I have to do that day. No, I totally get that. I, it's I, really interesting. I, I, I do the same thing. It. Yeah. Um, everyone. So I have a to-do list that I keep on, you know, um, a note on my iPhone and, um, and it has like big picture things that I want to do. And usually things are ranked on like how soon I need to get them done. Yeah. Right. But, um, some days I just on a piece of paper write down, it's like, these are the, thi- this is the thing or the things I absolutely need to get done today. Um, and it's good to have that clarity because sometimes you can really be overwhelmed by like, oh my gosh, I have all this stuff to do. Um, but if you have, this is my list of things I need to do today. it's like, these are, you know, the non-negotiables. This happens today. Um, it, I think makes things a lot more productive and a lot of clarity because it doesn't give you time to worry about. It's like, oh, well, I need to work on this contract or whatever. Um, or get distracted, really, you know, uh, get distracted by email, get distracted by social media. Yeah, social media is a tricky one for me because I find uh, it, it's a powerful tool or whatever, you know, yeah. all those things exist. But it's not hard to go from the far right where you're updating your, you know, the far right button on Instagram, which yeah. is like your profile. Yeah. It's not hard to then click on like the far left where everybody else's posts yep. are. And before you know it, you're scrolling through and... um I know that you are active on social media mm-hmm. and uh, like many others. Uh, and I'm curious if you have uh, tips or habits that you've picked up on making sure you can manage um, I don't, using it, but not trying to do too much of it. And um, I do too much of it. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. I we're, we're getting ready to do a big album release on, on Monday, which is very exciting. But um, so we've been doing a lot of social media circling around that. Um, and it's been great, but I'm really excited to, um, not post every day. Yeah. Um, I don't know for me, it's, I love Instagram. Instagram is awesome. Like, I think I was a late comer to Instagram 
I don't even know when I created my account. It less, I don't know, six years ago or something like that. Six, I seven did, years mine ago. Mine was two, like two years wow. ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I was against it. And then I did an Instagram takeover with our orchestra. Yeah. I was like, what, a, why, or why have I not been doing this? This is kind of cool. No, every once in a while I need a student to uh, kind of describe to me what I need to do. Like, yeah. it's like, what does this do? Like, <laughs> I, it took me forever to figure out what stories were. Um, and why, like, why, like, why would I do a story? Yeah. That um, took a while for me too. And I don't know. It's kind of fun. It's for me, it's a great way to keep up with what some of my friends are doing because most of my friends are musicians. Um, you know, and what I'm really excited for after the CD release is using social media so I can stay up to date on what they're doing so I can go check out their gigs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm at the point where I really want to... Um, soak in and enjoy the music that my friends and my peers are doing. Yeah. So let's talk about this CD release and we'll talk about your big band. The first question I have is why make a CD, right? In today's age, CDs yeah. are coasters, you know, like why are we making CDs? And B, uh, what led you to want to do your own big band versus like what made you want to run it versus or be the the, the flagship part of it well, versus just being a part of one? Yeah, well, I, I've been a part of some really great big bands and um, it takes a specific person to run a big band. Um, and I've gotten lots of practice at it here at Blair, um, you know, with a student ensemble. Now, um, I've been writing big band charts for coming up on 15 years now. Um, but within that time frame, I, I don't even know how many big band charts I've arranged or composed myself. Um, you know, it's not a number I've kept track of, but it's a lot. Yeah. Um, and within that, you know, I've been writing for Jeff Coffin. I've been writing for Victor Wooten, Keb Moe, Wyclef Gordon, um, working on a chart for Wayne Bergeron. Um, you know, are you going to try to put Wayne's name somewhere in the title? Yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> um, there, there was, uh, do you know the jazz standard September in the rain? I think I was thinking of September, September and the Wayne. Wayne. Nice. Um, that's pretty clever. Yeah. Do like a reharm of that or something, uh, contrafact of that or something like that. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. <laughs> and of course, Wayne gives me like no, uh, like parameters. Right. It's like, we were talking, it's like, Hey, you, you know, well, let's do a chart. And, it's like, cool. Like, what do you want? And it's like, I, that's because like, I can just do anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I, I need to get, get on that actually. But, um, and, and so over time I've been writing for all these different people and doing some stuff, um, writing some originals of my own. I, I get commissioned by some colleges and universities and, uh, high schools a lot. Um, and so I just had this big stack of music. And I, as I mentioned, I'd been writing for Jeff Coffin for some time. And he's always been really encouraging of me starting my own big band, like over a decade ago, like was like, yeah, you should start your own big band. And um, other musicians in town have been very encouraging. And then finally, one day, uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, Jeff basically said, it's, you know, it's happening. We're doing this now. I have a studio day booked for you. We're doing a big band. It's like, it's going to be your band. So he kind of was the one who pushed me over, over the edge. Um, 
like really hard pushed me over the edge because I think if it were up to me, I would have probably just dragged my feet <laughs> for, for yeah. because uh, you know, we it's all, a big project. Yeah, it's yeah. a huge project. Uh, we all, all have a lot to do and you know, the organizational aspects of putting, you know, 20 top calls, uh, Nashville musicians in the same room is, uh, it's an undertaking. Yeah. I can so, imagine. um, you know, but we you made, probably just don't do a doodle poll, right? Yeah, no, 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 no. We don't. We don't do that. Um, you know, the studio because we did two separate studio dates. Um, the studio was making fun of me because I think I emailed them like for the second date. I emailed them in July for a date in January or February or something like that, and they were like. Yeah, of course the studio's open. It's like, you don't understand. Right. <laughs> this is the next time all these people can come yeah. together. Yeah. If I get this on the books now, we can figure this yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, and I, I think the the reason why I'm the right fit for running a band is because I can think in that, that bigger picture, detail, organizational uh, minded uh, person. And um, so... You know, we had the music, we had the repertoire already there. Um, there's a bunch of really great musicians here in the city, and um, you know, and then we have you know the fact that I very organizationally minded. So those those things kind of all no, it seems to make sense. Came, yeah. came to a head, and and then all you just needed was that push. Yeah, yeah. and Jeff Coffin just push. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that kind of really really sparked this. So what are the, like, what's the, with them being as busy as they're going to be, what's the commitment, you know, not, I mean, obviously it's a real, it's like a band that's playing, but are you playing lots of concerts all over the place? No, the goal is not to do a ton of stuff, um, mostly because everyone's busy and it's an act of Congress. Um, But we've done some stuff here at the Blair School. We've done a couple studio sessions. We played the Nashville Jazz Workshop. We're having a city release at City Winery. Um, so it's semi-active. Like I would like to do something like every quarter, okay. more more like that. And you know, eventually down the road, would it be cool to have like a Monday night thing, like do a Village Vanguard thing, or uh, you know, every Tuesday night or whatever? Um, I think some someday that might happen, but that that day is not now <laughs> for, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, or like a once a month thing might be cool, but that I wouldn't want to do it much more than that. Sure, sure. And so you guys have done this CD, which sounds great. Yeah. Um, it's coming out today is September thirteenth. Yeah, so it's coming out Monday. Monday, which is September sixteenth. Yeah. So whenever this is coming out, sometime next year, I'm sure. So yeah. Um, but that'll be out. People will know about it by the time this is yeah, I hope so. doing a thing. And um, there's some clips on YouTube I listen to, and it's just it, it it all just sounds really great. You know, I mean, obviously we're talking about the best you know yeah. musicians in Nashville, so it's no surprise. But it's always the question I'm sort of headed to here is uh, there's all sorts of already great jazz CDs. So adding one to the lexicon or the repertoire is um, obviously you're adding things that are composed. Yeah. I think you wrote some stuff and there's some other. I wrote wrote everything. Oh, you wrote everything. Okay. I thought there was some other uh, charts on there. So you wrote everything. So you're obviously adding new things into it, Mm -hmm. but it just, yeah, it seems like, uh, I don't know what, what question I'm trying to ask. Why why add more uh, Yeah, kind of like, like what is. I think I know what you're getting at. To me, having, I, first of all, I love being in the studio. It's like my happy place. Okay. 
you know, um, and I, I'm very comfortable on either side of the microphone. And it's just, to me, it's my own little laboratory of, you know, this process of like making something that, you know, is permanent, you know, it's uh, this permanent thing. Yeah. Um, and something that can be shared and, you know, in jazz, we're not going to have, you know, a ton. It's not like we're going to ever like, you know, sell a million albums, you know, on a record. Um, not unless you're Miles Davis or, you know, John Coltrane, who's, right. you know, they found another, a lost Coltrane record or uh, whatever. Um, so, you know, I think for us, it's kind of, you know, here, here's this music that we've created that we want to share with other people. Yeah. And I think that's what it's about. And hopefully for, for me as the person who produced this music, um, I hope it's something that, you know, brings joy to other people, you know? Sure, sure. Um, there's some of the stuff that is on the record where I think, you know, it's more creative minded and, you know, hopefully might inspire like other jazz arrangers and composers or other musicians like, um, but for me, I, I really start, start the record and end the record with something that, uh, it's going to be fun, feel good, you know, and there, there's other moments within the, the record. Like for me, it was really about, you know, sharing, you know, the, the kind of this baseline, this human emotion, uh, with other people yeah. or, and whoever listens to it, it does, like it could be a jazz musician who listens to it. Or it could be a classical musician who listens to it. And the goal at the end of the day was to have something for everybody. Yeah. Uh, even for the casual listener, I think some, a casual listener can take a l listen through this and, you know, be like, Oh, well, I really enjoy that one track, even if it's just that one track. And especially for someone who is a casual listener, if they enjoy one track and be like, Hey, you enjoyed jazz music today. And if I can get someone just like, just on the hook and be like, yeah, I listened to jazz today and I enjoyed it. Cause I think if you ask the reg regular, a regular person who's not a musician, who um, doesn't really have an aptitude towards music at, at all, um, you know, it's not a huge deep music listener, what they think about jazz music. I, I, I don't think you're going to get a positive response. Yeah, I would. I would imagine. It, it's almost like how I feel sometimes when I listen to jazz. I understand technically. Yeah, this is incredible, and this is actually. I feel like I would love your opinion on this. When I listen to, uh, let's say, uh, bebop and on, mm -hmm. I'm just confused most <laughs> of the time. But Me when too, I listen man. to, let's say. Uh, right before like Maynard Ferguson, right? Yeah. So like just before that, where it was kind of like Duke Ellington, even like experimental Duke Ellington, not just like A Train or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. but like the jungle, you know, like, yeah. and then before that Count Basie and, and stuff, I grew up on that stuff. It feels like they're just playing melodies, right? They're just playing tunes. And is it that there we people are still playing melodies in bebop? They're just more confusing, yeah, or did it turn into something else? They're more complicated melodies uh, in bebop. Um, yeah, I had a when I was first learning about jazz, I had a huge thing with bebop where it's like, man, that this doesn't make sense, you know. Um, and and I I too really enjoyed like Count Basie and and stuff like that. Um, and I've warmed up to to bebop. Um, but I think that that was just a very specific frame in time. And we use that language that um, was developed in bebop 
and we apply it in new ways. People, um, I mean, people like when Marsalis uses bebop language and into his own devices. And I think we're still using some of that language in, in our own way. Um, it's just everyone that was doing their thing. Like, and I think if you, if you listen to parts of the record, it's going to very much remind you of like Basie or, um, you know, even maybe some of Maynard's band uh, stuff because Steve Patrick, who's the trumpet player, or lead trumpet player on it, screams in some yeah some moments. Um, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. For for me, um, there there is some more esoteric things on, on the record, but um, you know, ho- hopefully the the goal is to to bring the listener in in different ways. Where if they listen to one track and be like, oh well, I didn't hate that and or it's like oh i actually kind of enjoyed that it had a melody to it um it's something i really harp on my comp and arranging students that i have here is that no you will write melody you will write melody i actually have one student right now where his entire task is you know to bring me like a great melody i don't care about harmony i don't care about like groove or anything like that it's like write me a really great melody that you can have stuck in your head for for weeks and he's now like we're we're getting to the point of the semester where it's actually becoming very good. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll let him add harmony next week. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think great melodies are are really important. Things are singable. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that everything needs to be that way. But I think that has to be to me. That's one of the most important parts of creating music is is you know, a convincing melody. Yeah. I mean, I think of classical music in the same way. There's many melodies and lots of the greatest war horse pieces we have. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes modern music gets a rap of, uh, it's just confusing. Yeah, It doesn't make much sense. And so I don't think it's dissimilar in that way. And so you are somebody that spends so much time in that world, not only as a performer, but clearly as someone who probably, you know, you write in those in those styles, in those like you said, in that vocabulary. Yeah. So what's a way that you feel like people who are like me, like maybe just like explaining it to me, but people also who feel the same way, what's our way in, you know, what's our way into feeling like we understand that a little bit better or besides, I mean, the the obvious answer is just spend more time with it. Right. But beyond that, is there any way that we have kind of a way where we have, we can sort of understand it a little bit differently? Is there something that we should listen to specifically and some sort of progression? Or is it like we learn this thing or is it literally just listen to it a whole bunch, even if you don't like it, and you'll, you know, what I'm saying. No, well, I, I don't think I think you find what what you like, you know. But we we could call it like an acquired taste at some point, right? There's yeah. music that I may not have always liked that I really appreciate now. Yeah, and so it, you, I mean, to a certain extent, it's a, a an acquired taste. But I mean, in jazz, we we very much have this clear lineage of of music, and I think I, I have this trumpet student right now who we've been going through different transcriptions of like really great jazz trumpet players. So we started with Louis Armstrong, which, you know, to me, that's, you know, minus Buddy Bolden, who has no, uh, you know, recordings of him. He's really where it starts. That's where where you got to start off. Right. And we're progressing through. And finally we're at blue Mitchell right now. And he's like, man, I really enjoy this playing because he, he relates to it much more, uh, to his contemporary ears versus the way that Louis Armstrong played. Uh, it was very difficult for him to do the Louis Armstrong because he had no relation to it. I think that's why groups like Snarky Puppy are really popular um, with especially uh, uh, 
people my students age people like in their uh late teens early 20s because it's very melodic it's very groove oriented they have great videos um it's very much connecting to to what they know um so i think starting with something that you can personally relate to is a great place to start and then kind of being like well who influenced those people oh yeah kind of follow their lineage yeah yeah yeah, follow, follow their lineage backwards so let's say and think of a better example uh, let's say I really love Wynton Marsalis, who, uh, who influenced Wynton, you know, Wynton's a pretty well-rounded trumpet player. So just about everybody. Sure. So, um, but I would say like Lee Morgan would be up there. So I would go check out Lee Morgan. Um, but then keep following. So who influenced Lee yeah, Morgan? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting. So, so if, I think if you follow it backwards, um, you'll start with what's more accessible and then you can kind of, you know, the benefit is, um, you know, many of the people who will probably be inspiring us right now are contemporaries. They're, we're able to access them at, you know, be like, hey, you know, Jacob Collier, who really influences you? Or um, whoever you want to talk to. It's pretty, you can reach out really sure. easily yeah, through yeah. social media. One of the ben- one of the few benefits of social media. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you know, the people who you admire now are really accessible. So um, really finding out who influenced them and going backwards, because I think if you start, it's like, all right, I'm going to make myself listen to uh, the dial recordings of Charlie Parker. First of all, I think our, um, most people's ears have just become really well attuned to like perfectly produced music, like down to a T. So it's hard for especially contemporary ears to listen to um, some of the recording quality. Uh, of um, jazz of the yeah, you know, 1930s, 1940s, and sometimes 50s. I mean, yeah, certainly. I would totally agree with that, actually. You almost, it's like almost an instant turnoff, even if the musical quality, I would say that in people's playing as well. Yeah. When you listen to some very musical playing, but if this presentation in terms of sound or yeah. tone is, it's it's very difficult to listen past the physical sound of something, yeah. I think. And now that's an acquired skill yeah you know listening past the recording quality that's an acquired skill okay um so that's why i think doing the lineage backwards is really uh accessible more accessible for uh a listener who might not be in love with jazz yeah um because that's me I mean, not that I'm not in love with jazz. It's just there's certain things I know I like, and yeah. then there's certain things I don't feel like I know enough to know if I like, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And we have people who feel that they are not, uh, I don't know, uh, learned enough to enjoy classical music. They go to a concert, like, I don't know what these instruments are, like a lay person, yeah. right? a civilian, as yeah. we call them. And so I, I feel similarly about jazz, where it's I haven't spent enough time with it. So that's the first step yeah. for me, obviously, is spending more time, but that's a pretty interesting way to sort of guide your start. If you're someone who's not sure, pick somebody you do like, and then try to follow their lineage backwards to, to find a different style. And then maybe follow a lineage forward from there in oh, a yeah. different direction. Yeah. Well, I think the, the onus is partially on us as musicians. Um, I don't, have you ever seen the Nashville symphony here? I haven't. No. Uh, they're, they're, first of all, they're incredible. Yeah. Uh, Giancarlo, um, the, the maestro, um, he is so impressive in the way that he is able to talk about music. And it's like, it's super inspiring to me Um, because he does it in this way that really enhances and describes the music, but it's accessible for everyone, but it doesn't dumb it down. 
And it's wow. this it's this magical balance he's he's able to he's so thoughtful behind it. And he's doing it in English, which is not his first language. <laughs> yeah. And uh I can not even do that in my my first language. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? yeah that's yeah. Um so he's so thoughtful behind it. Um and I think for us as musicians to be successful and to have listeners and audience in, in the 21st century, we need to figure out ways to describe music to people where um, it will enhance their listening experience, but also present it in a way that's not watered down. If you believe that, which you just said it, so I assume you do believe it, what, what's been your potential progression in help in trying to do that, at least in your realm that you do it in. Right? Yeah. So I usually when I'm talking about music, I'm talking about music to an audience. Um, you know, here here at Blair, um, and I've been trying to be more thoughtful about the things that I to help uh, give context to the music. Um, I'm just not good at it yet, so it's going to take practice, like everything else does. Um, so kind of to to me describing to people what to listen for, um, I think is huge or giving some background, something personal behind the piece, uh, is, or historical behind the piece is really. So some connective narrative that they can follow. Yeah, exactly. So, um, my favorite, uh, I think it was the YouTube track you were listening to, uh, my arrangement of don't push. Yeah. Um, was my composition actually. So, um, so I wrote that and, Audiences really like this description a lot. So I wrote that for um, a former teacher of mine named Bob Washett for his retirement. Um, And it's based off uh, the first words he ever uh, said to me. So I auditioned my uh, freshman year at University of Northern Iowa to be in the big bands. I got put in the second band, which he was directing. And, um, you know, I didn't know squat at this point. Right. You know, I, I thought, um, tower of power was the be all end all of like, (laughs) of music at that point, especially as someone who played primarily baritone saxophone. And, um, so, and I had no clue. I was totally, uh, you know, fish out of water. And, uh, he turns to me on the first day of rehearsal and he says, don't push the suck button. And so I, <laughs> it's like, wow, so such inspiring words. Um, but no, he, he's probably one of the most influential uh, music educators that I've ever had. Um, and uh, so he retired at the end of, uh, what was it, last year or the year before. Um, and so I wrote that in honor of his retirement and uh, went up and played it for him. And so I thought it was fitting to name the piece. Don't, yeah. don't push. Yeah. Um, and he likes tunes. Like it's very soulful and like it's so he was a really great arranger. Um, and that's kind of his vibe. I want to kind of capture his vibe and something he would really enjoy. And did you ever consider naming it? Don't push the suck button. I think so. They actually have, (laughs) there's a YouTube video of, uh, because I went up and played with their band. I don't know if it's me playing with their band, uh, at Northern Iowa or them playing it on their own, but they actually, uh, put the suck button in parentheses. That's awesome. That's a great story to go, yeah, go along with that. And I can imagine for an audience, then they have some connective yeah. part in in that thing. You're bringing them along with you. Yeah, I, I believe this very much too. When I do recitals, mm-hmm. uh, I don't leave the stage. Yeah. A lot of people do, but for me, not leaving the stage and just like I don't really. I would prefer in a perfect world, no program, mm-hmm. no program notes, and I just say this is like what I kind of get out of this piece. And so you guide them sort of in this 
I like how beautiful this is, or I, this is really fun and really fast to play or whatever. But I, I, I went to a, a concert uh, that this group called the Menazel Brass did, okay. and they didn't have a program. So we were just sitting there watching, not knowing what was coming next. And you you got to like really experience it in real time. Mm-hmm. You weren't looking forward to a something that was happening in, in four pieces from yeah. now. So you're just kind of hanging out and waiting. It was very cool to me that we were sort of really, and then we got to talk to those guys afterwards. And he said they kind of do, they prefer it that way too, because then people were just watching and enjoying the moment of yeah. what's happening. And I think that's very, a very interesting. Anyway, and then they also just sort of have this very connective, it's a funny show and, and, and you really get the sense that they're bringing the audience with them in that moment. I think that's very cool and they're very successful, I think, as a result of that, not just that they play really well too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, uh, I know you have, we have, uh, Karen said you have till 5.30. Yes. So we have 25 minutes yeah. left. We won't Might necessarily need that long, but I think we should, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, we don't have to talk specifically about the weight loss. Yeah. Um, but I would like to talk about what you learned from the weight loss and then uh, we'll, we'll riff on that for a second. Because I think for, there's a lot of musicians, I think that are are fearful of potential physical activity. Yeah. Uh, for maybe they don't want to injure their fingers or they think it's going to injure their body in a way that's going to prevent them from being able to do their thing. But I'm sure you have, and I've definitely experienced quite the opposite actually, yeah. that I'm much more aware of my body. My posture is better. You know, I have less fear, or sorry, fewer problems in general. And uh, I, you know, I know I heard you say you don't do like super heavy deadlifting and stuff like that. You're more of like cardio and, and like strength based, but it's not like extreme. Yeah, you know? I you know every once in a while I, I flirt flirt with that idea of like where I'll do some like super he- heavy yeah. deadlifts and you know for me it, at this point it's about variety so I don't get bored. Yeah. You know? I'm actually quite the opposite. Yeah. I'm like really I'm I'm basically. I, I have a guy who programs my powerlifting for uh, me right now. And so I'm all into the super heavy deadlifting. And I mean, my body gets beat up, you know, yeah. but it never prevents me from doing anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you have your list of 10 uh, yeah. things that I think it's what training taught you about music or the other way around? Well, I learned as a musician that taught me about how to train because yeah. I was definitely a musician way before I ever trained. Sure, anything. yeah. But I feel for me, the more profound realizations have come what I learned about music from training. Interesting. I've, and I'm curious, I, I would kind of like to tell you what I think, and yeah. I would love for you to go off of that. What I've learned is how to like progress basically, hmm. where we have sort of, sort of an observable number yeah. or an observable time that we did something in. And then we have a time that we're trying to beat next time yeah. or a number we're trying to beat. And I notice in music, we don't have these as much of an observable progression lined yeah. up. Often it's done by feel, right? Uh, it feels like that scale or this piece is easier than it used to be. And so I've been trying to find ways to observably improve. And I don't know, that for me is one of the biggest things. Are there things for you, um, like I know you talked about technique and form and making sure it's like everything's in the right place before you really start to progress yeah. on both sides. Are there other things that you feel like that you learned from training that has affected you as a musician? Um, I, I think patience, you know, I, I think pa- patience fe- feeds both, both of them really. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I have so many musician friends who are trying to be healthier and I admire them for that. And um, they, they'll ask me, it's like, well, how, how did you do it? And I take them through it and 
then I get a message from them a week later. It's like, Brian, I've been working out for five days and, you know, <laughs> nothing's happening. And I was like, yeah, of course you've been doing it for five days. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think maybe it's the culture we live in now where, you know, if we want to figure something out, we can Google it or we can have, you know, talk about being counterproductive. We could have any type of food we want delivered to this office right now. Um, it's kind of this immediacy that um, we have as a culture now um, that, yeah, sometimes, especially, you know, I, I keep a pretty crazy schedule. Um, and sometimes like I'll be out recruiting for a weekend and then, you know, have to get back on track. So there's, you know, I think for me, it, it's understanding that sometimes there will be setbacks. That's not just this constant, um, uh, constant progression. Like you want to progress, obviously that's yeah. the goal, but it's not just this like constant, like there's going to be setbacks. Yeah. Um, when you're in a weight loss goal or for me, um, I mean, I've had, my original goal was to get a six pack when mm. I started working out. I still have not had one like four years later, you know, but because the goal has certainly changed. But whether it's weight loss or you're trying to gain strength or you're trying to do both or whatever your whatever your goals are, yeah. we would have, you know, little PRs, you know, where, oh, I've lifted more weight today than I ever have or I yeah. ran a mile faster. Do you think, do you think, well, if you do think this, what kind of PRs do you think might exist in music to help keep us moving forward and motivated does that make sense? Yeah. Like in our practice, because if we need patience and it's going to be this long-term progression of it's going to take us 10 years to get to mastery, it's the same thing as like a weightlifter or, or a marathon runner to get to a point of mastery. We're looking at a long period of time. Yeah. But like I said, there's these observable like metrics. Of, yeah, of um, I feel motivated. I did more weight. I want to go back and do more. Do you think this exists for musicians? And if so, in what form do you think musicians could rely on for... PR type things. I mean, for me, it's about the the performance. Like, you know, sometimes I'll I'll play a gig, um, you know, I'll play a jazz gig, and sometimes I feel it's some of the best, you know, jazz I've been playing in in, in my life. I can go in the next week and be like, well, this is rubbish. Um, so I think those moments where it's like, yeah, I feel really good about my playing. Um, for, especially for me as a jazz musician, so much of it relies on musical interaction versus, you know, uh, I played this, ex like I nailed this excerpt. Um, yeah. so for me playing musically is a huge thing. Um, being able to, um, play organically, I think is, is really, really big, uh, for me. Um, can you quantify either of those? I, no, it's just, it's all personal feeling, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you can always re record. I play this uh, weekly gig, uh, Sunday brunch jazz gig, and the guitarist always uh, records everything. Um, and I usually, I'll, I might listen back to a snippet or something like that, or he might send me a, a specific thing of, of me playing. And I'll listen back and sometimes, you know, I hear the progress and I also hear the off days. So, and there's off days in the gym, you know, this. of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, and then there's times that you're just like, ah, yes, this is the stuff. Um, so I think having that feeling, the kind of, yeah, I think there's a high when you play music really well that, you know, am I exactly where I want to be at, as a career musician? Um, 
maybe not, but like uh, having that feeling, that feeling of like, this is, you know, really what I want to be doing. And like, this is very organic for me and it, it feeds me and it energizes me. I think that's the closest thing as a jazz musician that I can get to, uh, you know, a PR. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's obviously so personal for yeah. everybody, you know, and one thing I think is an interesting parallel as well, that when we say there's good days and there is bad days, when you're in the gym, at least when I'm having a bad day, it kind of doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to go in. Yeah. I'm still going to get the work done. And so to me, the same exists on the instrument. And if it's not even about a particular performance, it's like, there's going to, you, there's just work to do. It doesn't matter how you feel. Yeah, about exactly. It. If you, you got to practice, you just got to get it in. It doesn't matter if, if you feel like practicing, it doesn't matter if, I mean, if you're going to be borderline injured, of course. Right. Yeah. But even if it's going to be, Oh, I don't have as much time to practice as I wanted to practice. If you can still get that time in, I feel like that mimics some of the discipline I've learned from the gym as well is uh, you just got to go get it done. You yeah. Know? You're not going to progress that you're not going to see that those gains, you know, yeah. Um, and that's something big time. I feel like I've learned too, is just, you just got to get it in. There's yeah. kind of no excuses. Either you do it or you don't. Yeah, for sure. Um, the last thing I would like to ask you to, to close this out is, um, we've kind of touched on it, but I would like, like to see if we could come to some sort of a holistic answer is just, you, you're, a, you're clearly driven. You ask a lot of your students, uh, you're, you know, you have your non-negotiables that are very important to you. And I'm curious if there's a way that you feel like you can sum all this up into some sort of like identity phrase, right? Where it's like, what is the thing or what's your why? That's how Karen would say. What's my why? That's how, yeah. If you, I'm sure you've thought about this because you've been asked it, but I'm just curious, like what allows you to keep the motivation to uh, go through the bad days and and get the three hours of arranging in and and know, know that you can do it besides like, getting paid. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I don't know for me, the, it's funny you bring up the, the money aspect of it. Um, because I came from very much a working class family. Um, and I think, so going to college wasn't assumed, like it was more assumed that if you went to college, you would go to community college, which I was fortunate. I had a very great community college in my hometown. Um, but so when I was like, no, I want to go to a four year college and I want to study music. It was kind of like, plank stairs like are you serious like you're not you're you know the thing that ever every parent still says today is like there's no way you can make a living right. playing music yeah. i was like yes i can yeah um so <laughs> for, for a while um you know obviously the music motivates me and inspires me i think for a while there um you know the, what inspired me was like i will prove you all wrong and i'll make a really comfortable living playing music yeah that which, fuel of just <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right yeah um but for me, like, I just, man, I love teaching. Like, I love sharing music with people. Um, wh- whether that is, like, in this academic setting that we're sitting in now. Um, I love sharing music w- with people. And that's that's my why. Um, and I I can't always figure out what, what, what drives it. And my fiance and I were talking about this uh, the other day. Because I was joking. It's like, you know, um, because she's about to sign a, a, a new contract. And I said, Hey, does this mean I can be a stay at home pet dad? Mm. And <laughs> she said, if anyone, you know, has that as like, it's totally going to be her because she thinks I'd go absolutely insane. If like I, I just stayed home and, and didn't do this, like, this is what, what absolutely drives me. 
um, doing music, sharing music with people. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't think I would have it any other way. So it, you kind of, music has got to be a part of your life in this big of a capacity, you feel like. Yeah. You know, one of these days it would be great if, you know, it was less big of a, like music is a huge part of, of my, my life at this point, since I'm actually feeling more of a administrative role here. Uh, you know, some days I play email that more than I do the saxophone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, figuring out that balance, striking that balance of, um, how do I advocate for music? Um, while still being able to play music, because sure. I, I think from an administrative oh, point, that's an interesting point. Yeah, it is from an administrative standpoint. I'm doing a lot to try to give these students in the school and our community the best experience with music, but that takes so much away from you. Yeah, yeah to, to, to take so much away from the actual music that huh. I get to do. But um, trying to strike that balance is like, oh, you know, for example, right before you um, came in, it's like I'm working on. Uh, having the Village Vanguard Jazz Orchestra come and do a guest residency down here. It's like I can spend my entire day like just doing the pa paperwork alone just on that. Sure. Um, but how do I make it so, you know, I have time to create the music? But at the end of the day, when they come down here, how much big of an experience will it be for these students? How big of an ex like life-changing experience will it be for those students in our community that we have here? Yeah. Um, an opportunity that you know, we wouldn't regularly have. So um, I don't know. So for me, the sharing music from a big picture is is what probably drives me. That's very cool. Um, I know I said it was the last question, but I have one more. What does uh, what do you feel like the next five years ah. holds? You know, where did where what does growth for you look like? What are your either if it's projects or just things you would like other maybe ideas or like areas you yeah. would like to go into? Is there anything that's on the horizon that you know of? So on the horizon, um, I would like to pick and choose a little bit more. Um, I've been writing big band charts at kind of like a disgustingly fast pace. Like for, for some people, they'll spend like three months on one big band chart. And then there were months last year where I knocked out four big band charts in a month. Um, that's one per week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, there'll be a couple like in a weekend and it's just like, wow. I, I really want to focus on taking my time a little bit more, um, taking my dog on hikes, stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah. And so from a musical standpoint, um, I think it's going to be taking more time and in, in being more thoughtful in how I create my music. Um, and then I know we're, we're going to have to do another big band record because, you know, the, this I'm so happy with how this one turned out. Um, and I would like to do a small group record. I think that might actually happen before the next big band one. Um, I think what I want to do next is kind of focus in on the different, especially from a horn player standpoint, um, doing kind of feature records. Um, I know that at some point we needed to do like a trombone like record like here's you know the Ryan Mitted Jazz Orchestra with like any trombone player that you could ever think of really feature the bones definitely want to do a record called Tenor Madness you know um, and I, I also play a lot of tenor um, but have Jeff Coffin on it and uh, Rasan Barber who lives here in town and some other guests and maybe do a trumpet centric one you know and have Wayne come out Rashawn Ross and like all yeah. those guys and feature the guys who live here in town and so that's kind of when I think of the big picture that we might not get all of that done in five years but 
Um, and I'm also really curious about the crossroads of global music with jazz and also chamber music. Um, uh, this has been kind of on my to-do list for a while is do a project with uh, this group called Alash. And it's a Tuvan uh, folk group. So they do Tuvan throat singing. Oh, wow. They, um, the percussion, the flutes and stuff like that. Um, and they come over here to the States pretty frequently. So I would be interested in see where the crossroads are, where it's like, where can we fit what they're doing from a folk music standpoint with improvisation and then chamber music. Huh. And um, like, we have some really great colleagues here. Um, you know, J Jeremy Wilson, who you've sp spoken with, um, is fantastic. But like also Jihei Ajung, uh, who's our percussion instructor, really great mallet player. It's like, I'd be curious, it's like, how, how do we combine? Yeah. Uh, Tuvan uh, folk music and like Jihei on marimba, maybe tr uh, some trombone, like improvised saxophone, rhythm section. Like we're like, what pot can, what what can this, you know, gumbo make, you know? It, yeah. And stretching yourself like that can only be good. Yeah. You know? So I'm, I'm that's been on my to-do. I, I actually wrote a, a grant proposal on that. So I'm hoping maybe the any. NEA, if they're listening, will... will <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't <laughs> promise they're listening. <laughs> um, National, National Endowment for the Arts, if you're listening, please fund that proposal. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, cool. That's like, that's it's just inspiring to me. I, I like asking that question. I just started doing it now. I like asking that question because, I mean, I have certain ideas and, and things that I have, you know, in the future that I would like to do. And it's always really inspiring to me to know that although you're doing a lot of really great stuff right now, it's not just, oh, I did my thing and I'm done. Like, yeah. It's going to keep going. And um, it's very been very, it's very been much good to speak with you. <laughs> I think that's the sentence I was going to say. I appreciate you letting me talk to you. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you. Or find the CD, yeah. kind of what are all the ways that they can do Like I said, the CD will be out by, for a while then. Yeah, so, so uh, easiest way is ryanmitted.com, and there's links um, to everything there. So it, that's the easiest way, R-Y-A-N-M-I-D-D-A-G-H.com. Um, and there's links to my Instagram on there. There's links to my Facebook on there. Uh, there's the online store that will have the CDs for sale, um, you know, there other special product uh, products. I also, uh, for those of you who teach and uh, or want to have your own professional big band, I sell some of my big band charts on there as well. Oh, cool! Uh, to add and it's uh, add to your library, and it's pretty easy and accessible. Nice. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so. I have a website that's not spit dot com, uh, Facebook and Instagram at that's not spit. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and or and or other episodes on the podcast, if you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes, that'd be pretty cool. And I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum, the guy who masters these episodes and gets rid of train sounds and, <laughs> and, and plane sounds and stuff like that. Makes them sound so good so you can focus on the content. And most of all, I would like to thank you, for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.